Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sass Elisha. Hey, and we're excited to bring you Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Yeah, and Jeremy and I, as you guys know, are very passionate about education. We're going to talk about things that you want to hear, things about case management, pharmacology, critical events, things that you want to know that are going to help you take care of patients in the operating room. And we're going to do this in a power-packed, concise episode. Right, Sass? That's right. Well, we're going to try at least. So take some deep breaths and pre-oxygenate yourself. And it's go time. That's right. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. All right, so everyone, in this episode, we're going to continue discussing our crisis checklists and the ones that relate to distributive shock specifically. We're going to talk about neurogenic shock and we're going to make our updated checklists available to you soon. So stand by for that. Now let's get into it. Remember in episode one, we discussed the uh, the state, the anaphylaxis state, so anaphylactic shock. And so like I mentioned, now it's time to move on in distributive shock and talk about what happens in neurogenic shock. Yeah, so let's talk about a case. So let me introduce this to you, and I want you guys to think about what it is you would do, what are the signs and symptoms here. So you have a 34-year-old male that came into the ER after a motor, motor vehicle crash. His vital signs right now, his blood pressure is 80 over 40. His heart rate is 48 beats per minute. His temperature is 35.4. His saturation is 92% on face mass oxygen. He has a strong odor of alcohol in his breath, no movement of his legs, weak movement of his arms, and he's a little bit disoriented. So Jeremy, with this picture, what are the things that you would do first? What are your priorities here? Yeah, so obviously this is a trauma. And when somebody comes in who's altered, and this person person is definitely altered, you know, we've got alcohol, we've got some disorientation and lack of movement. So we're thinking Glasgow coma score, we got to evaluate that. And that looks at eye opening, verbal response, motor response. And, you know, he's going to get points taken off for all three because he's not fully with it. 
So primarily, I'm going to be worried about the head and then any other possible injuries to the chest or anything that that is that could be really severe. And that what we would look at in a primary assessment. Yeah. Then uh, another thing that looks really strange is you have someone in a shock state whose blood pressure is 80 over 40 and his heart rate is 48. So assuming that he's 34 and he's not on a beta blocker, why is his heart rate 48? Well, number one, I'm not liking either of those vital signs. So low blood pressure, that's always concerning. But usually when we see low blood pressure in a shock state, we're going to have tachycardia along with that. We're not seeing that here. So that means one of two things. Either there's something going on neurogenically or the patient is not compensating and they're about ready to go into cardiac arrest. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, the other thing is with the scenario that we gave his sets 92%, you always got to think about the possibility that he's not going to be able to control his airway and then you're going to need to manage it. Absolutely. And, you know, 92%, I'm okay with that, but I'm starting to get concerned. Really, the concerning ones are those blood pressure and heart rate. Yeah. So can you rule out vertebral fracture when a patient's intoxicated? No. Unfortunately, it's really difficult. You need to get imaging to rule out any kind of vertebral fracture. Yeah. And he's mildly hypothermic. So he's hypotensive, hypothermic, and bradycardic. Hmm. Oh, this is painting the picture now, isn't it? <laughs> yes. All right. Um, yeah, you talked about Glasgow Coma Scale. So let's talk about what things you would order um, in terms of labs. All right. So, and this is going a little bit beyond the primary assessment. So, like you said, we're gonna we're gonna support the airway. We got to do something about his hemodynamic status. Um, so now, in the secondary assessment, that's when we're gonna start ordering things. Definitely, we're gonna want to get imaging. A, a CAT scan is gonna be the best way to rule out any cervical fracture. And as far as labs, we'll want a CBC, we want an H&H, &H, we want some electrolytes, we'll need to get a tox screen, um, see how intoxicated this individual is, get a lactate, and we, we should also get some coags along with that. Yeah, so the picture doesn't look so great for this man at this particular point in time. No, absolutely. So this is, this. we have now set the stage, and I think it's time to talk more in depth about neurogenic shock. What do you think, Sass? Yeah, sounds good. So let's start out with some pathophysiology. So if we remember preganglionic neurons of the sympathetic nervous system, now these are the neurons that originate in the brainstem. So right up top, think about the hypothalamus, the pons, the medulla, and they're going to travel down and arise from, in the spinal cord, from the intermedial lateral cell column. So this is in the lateral horn of the spinal cord. And these nerves, these sympathetic nerves, are going to exit at the thoracic and lumbar regions. So we're talking about segments T1 through L2. So AKA, we'll say, we'll call that the thoracolumbar distribution. Yeah. And if you remember the autonomic nervous system and you remember innervation, Parasympathetic nervous system, the majority of it comes right from the brainstem via the vagus nerve. And there, and then when we talk about sympathetic nervous system, uh, again, when we talk about vasoconstriction and cardio accelerator uh, innervation, we talk about, again, coming from the brainstem. But what is different is that information comes from the brainstem down the spinal cord 
two peripheral nerves that then innervate organs. So when you have a spinal cord injury, that's why you have a loss of the sympathetic nervous system innervation and you have parasympathetic nervous system predominance. Now, this, uh, this predominance is going to occur at higher spinal cord injuries. So the greater the intensity of vasodilation and possibly bradycardia, along with diaphragmatic paralysis, that's going to occur above the level of T4. Some will say T5, but above the level where those cardiac accelerator fibers innervate all those organs. And another way that you can think about the signs and symptoms associated with neurogenic shock, just think about a spinal anesthetic. When you do a spinal anesthetic and you give medicine, what you're doing is inhibiting the sympathetic nervous system. The higher the level of the block, the greater the degree of vasodilation. And we know that. The good thing about a spinal anesthetic is, of course, it's going to wear off. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. All right, let's hit signs and symptoms. So we already mentioned them uh, in terms of the case study and the signs and symptoms that the patient was exhibiting. So severe hypotension, and that is lockstep with shock. So loss of the sympathetic nervous system influence, vasodilation. And as Jeremy said, the higher the level of the spinal cord injury, the greater the amount of vasodilation and the lower the blood pressure. Now, next, this patient was bradycardic. Why was he bradycardic? Well, if the spinal cord injury is anywhere between T1 through T4, and some, as Jeremy said, some sources say T1 through T5, Students, this is absolutely imperative that you know this for tests and for boards. Uh, spinal cord injury there will can cause the cardioaccelerator fibers and the innervation to the heart to not be effective. And therefore, patients may develop bradycardia and the bradycardia may be very, very severe. Now, I have read in some sources also, what if there's a spinal cord injury below the level of cardio, the cardio accelerator fibers. So we're talking below level, the level of T5. Yeah. Will, will we see bradycardia? You shouldn't see bradycardia. Um, it's always a possibility because it doesn't have to be a complete spinal cord transaction. Realize that when a spinal cord injury occurs, edema can continue to occur and, and worsen. And, you know, that's a possibility. So anytime anyone has a spinal cord injury, it's something you should always be aware of. But we will likely see extreme hypotension Absolutely. or significant hypotension. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Because remember, you talked about thoracolumbar mm -hmm. be below the level of T4 or T5. There's still the, that innervation to the vasculature, which will be lost. Yeah. Okay, great. So now let's talk about the respiratory system. Sounds good. So now in, in our patient, they were sat in okay. It was a low 90s. They were on oxygen. So that's not the best. 
Um, when do we get concerned? We get concerned if we see a poor respiratory effort along with all the other signs and symptoms that we're looking at. Now, if there is a very high spinal cord injury, so we're talking the cervical area here, and if, if we get into the cervical three through cervical five area, remember what that is? C, C3 through C5 keeps the diaphragm alive. So obviously that is not a good area to be damaged. So again, students, we mentioned this before, we're gonna always point out areas of, of, of importance and so this is another one, C3 through C5, that, those, that is the phrenic nerve coming on the right and the left side from the spinal cord. So if that gets damaged, that could influence the diaphragm. Yeah. And, you know, you, we were talking about spinal anesthesia before and vasodilation. If the level of the spinal anesthetic continues to rise higher than we want and inhibits the cardioaccelerator fibers, well, there's bradycardia and even higher then the patient can have problems breathing or maybe even not breathe. And that's when we need to take over. Yeah. So let's look at how complex this is. You know, we're talking about neurogenic shock and we made this case about neurogenic shock. But, you know, as we talked about with the trauma, maybe this is, you know, he's not satting well because he's intoxicated. Maybe he's aspirated. Maybe he has a spinal cord injury. He's been in a traumatic accident. Maybe he has a pneumo. So there are lots of things that this could possibly be that you will also need to rule out. Absolutely. So this is where the differential diagnosis component comes in and so important to do that primary and secondary trauma assessment. All right. Now let's talk about treatment because that's really where the rubber meets the road. So let's break it down into a couple of components. The first, managing the airway. Second, managing hemodynamics. And third, managing this patient's temperature. So Jeremy, why don't you take it away with airway management? Oh yeah, I would love to. So airway management in the trauma patient and specifically a trauma patient where you're concerned that there is some kind of spinal cord injury or uh, cervical spinal cord injury. So the first thing that we need to talk about is stabilizing that spinal cord. If you get called to intubate a, a patient and there is a suspected spinal cord injury, you're gonna to wanna to do what's called inline manual axial stabilization. Some will call it manual inline axial stabilization, MILAS or MILS. You'll see it both ways, but the, the idea is the same, where there is one provider who uses both hands right about the, the level of the ears on, on the head and maintains that cervical spine in a neutral alignment. And they do that throughout the entire intubation process. So as another provider is managing the airway, that sole provider, their only job is to maintain that spine in a neutral position. Now let's talk about the provider who is managing the airway. Sometimes it can be a little difficult. And remember, these patients are probably gonna come in from, from the field uh, via EMS and they're gonna have a cervical collar in place to help prevent them moving their head and maintaining their spine in neutral alignment. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen airway providers neglect to remove the anterior portion of that cervical collar during airway management. And that's the whole point of doing the manual inline axial stabilization is to be able to remove that cervical collar and make it just at least not make it more difficult to manage the airway. In addition, if if you've ever seen somebody try to intubate with a cervical collar in place, putting pressure on the 
on the anterior portion of the head, so basically in the mouth, when a patient's try or when a when a practitioner, an airway provider, is trying to insert the blade, actually puts an additional amount of pressure on the back of the head and specifically at the cervical spine area where the where the spine meets the head. So that's exactly what we don't want to do in that situation. And then finally, it is recommended, and if you read research uh, that deals with managing a traumatic airway, there is a lot of recommend a lot of people recommending now that you just start out with a video laryngoscope. A hyperangulated video laryngoscope blade with a hyperangulated stylet inside your endotracheal tube. The last part of the airway management here is this patient is going to require a rapid sequence induction and intubation. So you really do need a third provider to apply that cricoid pressure if you're trying to reduce the possibility of aspiration. Now there's a whole controversy with regards to cricoid pressure. So if there is a suspected cervical spine injury, I would recommend avoiding cricoid pressure and putting any additional pressure on that neck. In addition, if cricoid pressure is being used during a traumatic airway management scenario, sometimes that can impede a view by the airway provider. So the airway provider who's looking at the vocal cords would just say, please reduce the cricoid pressure or release it. Okay, now SAS just talked a little bit about RSI and we're used to using succinylcholine with rapid sequence uh, intubation, in, induction and intubation. How about with this patient with an injury? Are we worried about potassium release? Yeah, so here's, you know, here's what the books say. The books say that receptor upregulation, extra junctional receptor upregulation isn't going to occur for 24 to 48 hours after the injury. However, it is still a possibility. Yes, there are people that may still uh, want to use succinylcholine for its not only rapid onset, but possibly rapid offset if you have problems. These days with the advent of Sugamidex, there are practitioners that would just go ahead and just use a non-depolarizer, um, either rock or VEC, and then if necessary, re reverse it with Sugamidex. So the point here is in this immediate period, and to your question, is it likely that the patient will become hyperkalemic with a dose of sucks at this particular point in time? It would be unbelievably unlikely because that extra junctional receptor upregulation and when stimulated, all that release of potassium, those physiologic changes have not occurred yet. Okay, so that makes sense. And let's say we don't want to use succinylcholine because we don't want to cause any fasciculations that could influence a cervical spine injury. So if we do decide to go with a non-depolarizer, rocuronium for a rapid sequence is probably the one to go with. And you're going to go with a, a, an RSI dose, so a, a very high dose, the highest intubating dose of rocuronium. All right, Jeremy. So thanks. So that's our first treatment thought is airway management. The next, our second, is hemodynamic management. And again, the patient's vasodilated. So therefore, giving a fluid bolus is recommended. So anywhere from 10 to 20 mils per kilo of an isotonic crystalloid to see how that will affect the blood pressure, hopefully bringing it up. Patient is going to need two large bore IVs, one not only for fluid, but then also for medications. And we're gonna get into vasopressor support in a little bit. The patient is absolutely going to need an arterial line. And you may, depending on where the spinal cord injury is 
or other injuries that the patient may have, you may consider a central line. Now, what do you want the blood pressure to be? What's your target? And there were old targets in the past, but this is a little bit, a little bit of a newer target. There's not great evidence yet, but the American Association of Neurosurgery Guidelines these days are recommending a mean arterial pressure target of anywhere from 85 to 90. And, you know, we always used to say, you know, that typical 65. The reason that right. they want it increased is because of the damage, because of the edema. If pressure is an increase, what you're having is hypoperfusion of the cord in that particular area. And of course, that's not going to end well. Yeah. Neurosurgeons these days are recommending a higher MAP value. And you'll see that in different neurosurgeries as well. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Jeremy, talk to us about vasopressor support. We're probably going to need it. What are we going to need? What are we going to do? Yeah, so it's unlikely that your 10 to 20 milliliter of uh, per kilogram fluid bolus is going to get you to that mean arterial target of 85 to 90. So vasopressors are likely going to be added. So what is the vasopressor of choice? And we have we have various ones. Now, we're used to using phenylephrine a lot. Is that the best choice for a patient who is bradycardic? Probably not. Probably not. Now, earlier we talked about a lower spinal cord injury, so below the cardioaccelerator fiber, so below T5, who a patient who isn't necessarily bradycardic, that might be a situation where you can consider a phenylephrine um, infusion. Um, all right, so now let's talk about other vasopressors. Well, you know, we could use ephedrine as an IV push. We're not going to use that as an infusion, but just as, as we're getting everything ready and maybe we just need a couple bumps in the blood pressure, you could consider ephedrine. Epinephrine is an option, probably not the first option. I think a lot of folks are going with norepinephrine as an initial option for vasopressor support in a neurogenic shock patient. Uh, norepinephrine has the benefit of both alpha and beta activity, so it's going to increase both the blood pressure and the heart rate, and that's exactly what we need in this scenario. So norepinephrine is probably going to be one of your first choices. May consider phenylephrine depending on the bradycardia if it exists or it doesn't exist. Now, secondary options, we could consider vasopressin. Vasopressin could be used if the patient remains hypotensive. Epinephrine is another secondary option as an infusion, as a low-dose infusion. Now, dopamine is in the textbooks. But one of the major drawbacks of dopamine is that it causes diuresis. And that's not what we want in a neurogenic shock who requires fluid to fill that extremely vasodilated fluid compartment. All right. And then for persistent bradycardia, when we talk about pharmacology, of course, we know that atropine certainly can be used. And students, if you remember back from nursing school, uh, prior to suctioning the endotracheal tube in a patient with a spinal cord injury, atropine certainly may be necessary. Yeah. And you mentioned persistent bradycardia. So we also have to 
we have to consider external pacing if that's a possibility uh, where the patient remains incredibly bradycardic. So that's an option. Now, we've talked earlier in uh, in the signs and symptoms about the heart rate and and students. A classic symptom of neurogenic shock is hypotension and bradycardia, but that doesn't always mean that a patient is going to be coming in bradycardic. And we talked about the reasons why, depending on the level of spinal cord injury. Another potential reason is that if a patient has existing catecholamines that are circulating, a patient in neurogenic shock may not enter the hospital, enter the emergency room bradycardic, and it may take a few minutes while they're being assessed, while IVs are being started before they go bradycardic because of those circulating catecholamines. Yeah. And then last, to kind of round it out, uh, in terms of the hemodynamic portion, in terms of guiding your hemodynamics and guiding acid-base status and guiding treatment, things that you're going to get in terms of labs. So you're going to get serial arterial blood gases, certainly the electrolytes, which could, you know, be off. Um, not only with, you know, you don't know how long this patient has been MPO, but with the alcohol and then with just with all of the physiologic changes. Certainly lactate levels are going to guide your management for vasopressor therapy. And of course, as we know, is a good measure to see the severity of the shock. And then, of course, we want to CBC. We want to make sure the patient's not bleeding because we could have a great mean arterial pressure. However, if you don't have any hemoglobin and no way to deliver oxygen to the tissues, uh, that's not going to work out well for the patient. Exactly. And there could be a combination of shocks going on. It could be hemorrhagic and neurogenic shock at the same time. Yeah, which is why trauma is such a difficult thing sometimes to know what's going on. And then to round this out, so our last thing, again, just to summarize, we've talked about airway management, hemodynamics, and then lastly, temperature regulation. So as these patients are vasodilated, they cool off really quickly. So providing active warming with a bear hugger, covering their heads, warming IV fluids, all the ways you know to try to keep their temperature up would be really, really, really important. And this is, you know, another reason that people get so cold in the operating room. Not only is the operating room cold, but our medications cause vasodilation. And when you do that, vasodilation allows for heat to leave the body. Yeah, exactly. And one other thing to consider is they've been exposed to the environment, so they'll likely come in cold. So it's going to require a lot to warm them back up. Now, this brings us to our very last section that we want to talk about in, in terms of neurogenic shock. And we want to talk about differential diagnosis so or the differential diagnosis that we should be considering. Now, based on the history of this patient and the bradycardia that was associated with the hypotension, it was pretty straightforward to zero in on a diagnosis of neurogenic shock. But what if the patient was just bradycardic? What, what if that's the only vital sign that we had? That and some hypotension. Well, we would need to consider other differential diagnoses. And this being a trauma patient, we absolutely should be doing that. Now, whenever we have bradycardia, we should always consider hypoxia as a potential cause of that bradycardia. And Sass, what are some other differentials that we should be thinking about? 
Yeah, so there are a number of other ones. One example is whatever causes vagal nerve stimulation. So an example in the operating room is the celiac reflex. Um, a high spinal anesthetic, as we've talked about, can cause bradycardia, especially if it gets up above those cardio accelerator fibers. And of course, we wouldn't be doing a high, uh, any kind of a spinal in this case. Ex yes. If we're just talking bradycardia, we would consider that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how about heart block as a differential diagnosis? I like that one. Probably not in a 34-year-old, right? Um, but is a possibility. And how about increased ICP, which totally relates to this case, for students, you guys probably remember the triad called Cushing's triad. Different here, hyper, so the triad is hypertension, bradycardia, and deep irregular respirations. So you could see the deep irregular respirations in this patient, maybe not with a head injury, but maybe with the alcohol and maybe with other things the person ingested. You could certainly, you have certainly seen the bradycardia what doesn't really fit here is the hypertension. And in Cushing's triad, the hypertension, which is a late sign right. of increased ICP, you'll see the hypertension first. However, when you see hypotension, uh, that's going to be really, really bad and a sign of really high intracranial pressure. Exactly, exactly. So we want to do occasionally when we're talking about crisis events, we'll do these uh, these differential diagnosis exercises especially for you students out there, so that you can really dazzle your clinical preceptors. Yeah. And, you know, even us old dogs, especially me old dog, you know, you can never do this enough in terms right. of doing differential diagnosis, because sometimes there may be stuff that you're very aware on academically, but you've never seen clinically. And the presentation may just be really strange. And we're hoping that as we discuss these things, the process will continue to become easier for everybody. All right, everyone. So that does it for Neurogenic Shock. Remember, you can earn Class B credits for listening to Beyond the Mass podcast. And, and if you guys like what you've heard and would like to help us grow, please consider leaving a five-star review and maybe even possibly writing a, a review. It really does help other people find the show. Now, as you know, word of mouth is the primary way this podcast grows. So if you have anesthesia friends who you think would enjoy this show, please consider sharing the podcast with them. And as always, Jeremy and I, thank you for listening. Okay, CRNA Nation, that is it for this episode. Remember, keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next episode. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. 
Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.